from the heart of our nation's capital. Here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Sitting in today for Tony is our own Sarah Perry, Director of Partnerships for Family Research Council. Good Friday afternoon to you. I'm Sarah Perry, filling in for Tony Perkins on this, the 1st of May, 2020. Coming up tonight on Washington Watch, Democratic presidential contender Joe Biden is making news as he defends against claims of sexual harassment brought by former staffer Tara Reid. But more concerning for most voters eyeing this year's presidential contest might be the types of judges that Joe Biden would nominate. Urging Biden to adopt President Trump's playbook, some activists are pressing him to release his list of prospective Supreme Court nominees. But why do Americans deserve to see the list if it's not required? And what might it say about the candidate himself? Carrie Severino, president of the Judicial Crisis Network, will have some answers on our first block. Then, in an effort to protect the rights of worship of Louisiana citizens, Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry just yesterday submitted a letter to Governor John Bell Edwards requesting that he amend his state's current emergency proclamation to open churches and houses of worship. The current coronavirus stay-at-home order from Governor Edwards prohibits gatherings of more than 10 people, including in churches. I'll have Attorney General Landry on to discuss. At the bottom of the hour, a nonpartisan coalition of individuals dedicated to protecting fairness in sports has launched a petition directed at the International Olympic Committee, demanding it suspend their guidelines on transgender-identifying male athletes for the upcoming games in Tokyo next year. Beth Stelzer, competitive powerlifter, mother, and the founder of Save Women's Sports, will join me to talk about the petition. And in my last block, today wraps up North Korean Freedom Week, and speculation continues on whether or not its dictator, Kim Jong-un, is dead or alive. Will the world see his sister assume leadership of the regime? And in a historic moment, two North Korean defectors have been recently elected in South Korea's parliament. Human rights activist Henry Song joins me to discuss the state of affairs in my last block. A reminder for all of you, download the Stand Firm app if you haven't already. And if you have, make sure it's the updated version. The app's been rebuilt from the ground up. And go to the Google Play Store or the Apple Store to be able to find our updated app. Stand Firm is the name of the app. Or follow the link on TonyPerkins.com. TonyPerkins.com has more information for you as well. For those of you who are sitting at a computer right now, you can also follow us on social media at FRCDC, at T. Perkins, or at Sarah P. Perry. Well, during the 2016 election, President Trump did what he does best, and that was surprise people. He surprised supporters and detractors with a list of judges he would consider Supreme Court nominees if he was elected. And that seemed to prove consequentially important for about 57% of voters. Now, as November approaches, the public's asking who Democratic presidential candidate and former Vice President Joe Biden would select for the bench if he emerges victorious. But Biden has skated the issue. So joining me now to talk about why America deserves to see his judicial shortlist is president of the Judicial Crisis Network, Carrie Severino. Carrie, welcome back. Great to be here. Thanks. 
Um, first, I want to start with these allegations against Biden. Is it just me, or are we seeing sort of a bit of hypocritically divided press coverage on these sexual harassment allegations when Biden is weighed against, oh, let's say, Justice Brett Kavanaugh? Is that just me, or are you seeing it too? <laughs> Exactly. No, I don't think it's just, you know, a lot of people have noted this is an uncomfortably similar scenario to what we saw during the Kavanaugh confirmations. I would say uncomfortably similar for a lot of Democrats who thought that due process shouldn't qualify when dealing with allegations going back decades. Only in this case, I think it's even more concerning for them because um, while there isn't even evidence, that Brett Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford actually not. There's no harm evidence of that. We know that Tara Reid did, in fact, work for Biden. And she right. does have some people who say that she told them about these allegations at the time, not decades later, as we did um, have with uh, with the Blasey Ford allegations. Now, so I think this is it's easier for someone. I, we were talking about due process, the importance of vetting completely not, uh, allegations before jumping to a conclusion this whole time. So I feel like I can, I can be consistent and say, I don't know, you know, what happened there. What concerns me is there's a lot of people on the left who completely flipped and said, women are just automatically believed. We have to take everything they say at face value, regardless of the facts that we can determine through evidence. And that's just simply not a fair yeah. system. They realize that when one of their favorite people, like Joe Biden, gets attacked. I, what I wish we could see is, first of all, all of these Democrats who were willing to throw all of these great American principles like due process, like the rule of law, out the window in order to attack Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. I want them to be asked what they think today. And I really think that Joe Biden in particular owes Brett Kavanaugh an apology, owes Clarence Thomas an apology, because yes. now I feel like maybe when the shoes me the other foot, you can hear him talk about these principles that he was able, uh, willing to set aside for political gain when he was helping attack them. You know, he's distinctly stated this issue of who is on his judicial nominee shortlist, and he's simply reiterated the fact that he has presided over numerous hearings, numerous judicial hearings in the Senate, and that he was directly involved in essentially trying to firebomb the Kavanaugh and Clarence Thomas uh, judicial nomination hearings. So he, he doesn't go directly to the issue, but what surprised me was that it was the left-wing liberal activists who are actually requesting this list, group like demand justice. I would have thought it would have been the right who would have requested who's on the short list. But it seems to me this is almost sort of a race to the left. What's your take? Well, you know, I was kind of excited to see that for a change because we've been asking for, you know, about a year, hey, right. Democratic uh, potentials should tell us who they appoint. We know, we know who President yeah. Trump would put on the, li- on, on the court. Let's find out. Let's have a head-to-head and compare these. They don't want to do it. And I'm loving the fact that the, the, even the liberal groups now want to see that. You're seeing these activists and money groups on the left saying, actually, we want to know what you're going to do, too. So I think I, I would love to see that because what we have seen so far is these outstanding men and women who have a record of being faithful to the Constitution and the rule of law coming out of President Trump's uh, both his list and then the people he's been putting on the on the appellate courts as well. You know, I, I, I would be interested to see if Biden's willing to make that um, that bold statement of, okay, I'm going to give you a list. It means that people, that we have a chance to vet them publicly. And I, I would like to see, are those people going to stand up 
as well as President Trump's nominees, who I think anyone looking at that list can say, yep, this is some amazing, outstanding potential Supreme Court justices. Yeah, absolutely. Well, back in February, he was participating in one of the many presidential debates for the Democratic candidates, and he did say that the commitment to abortion would be a litmus test for his Supreme Court nominees. So we know at least where he stands on that issue. He's flip-flopped on the Hyde Amendment. So again, this is sort of the no longer moderate Joe Biden. He's he's stressed bipartisanship. But this is somebody who I don't think is going to, based on where the Democratic Party is going, he's going to do well for himself if he maintains sort of the veneer of moderation and all of this. But I think tactically, it's a strange move to hold back in this situation, to highlight the fact that you fought Kavanaugh and Thomas and not come out with your own list. It really does, to me, look like he's got something to hide. Or he is too afraid to let down both sides, the Democrats who are more progressive and the Democrats the few middling of them who might be a little more on the moderate spectrum. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, practically speaking, what we have seen from Democratic nominees is even the ones who get described as, oh, this is a moderate justice. I mean, look look at, for example, you know, Justice Kagan, um, who was described as, oh, this is, she's going to be this moderate middle of the road pick. Um, Not so much. Yeah, every once in a while there's a case in which she disagrees with some of the liberals, but if you look statistically, they vote, the four uh, Democrat nominees in the court vote in lockstep incredibly consistently, far much more so than the conservatives. And in all those important and key cases, you see the allegedly moderate uh, Democrat nominees just as liberal. Um, I think the only thing moderate is maybe they have less of a clear record. But that's, that's why we need to see this list. So we can say, okay, you know, where does this person stand? Um, and I think you're, you're right to point out he, he has shifted his own position on some of these issues, uh, like I mean, the fact that he used to be pro-life and now he is um, so pro-choice he says, I'll have a litmus test even. He used to be against litmus tests before he was for them. You know, right. He's flip-flopping on everything. Right. I think you would, you're seeing that happen probably on his on the kinds of people he would appoint to the court as well. He's, you know, he likes to pretend he's the moderate, but we all know what we're seeing is, is a Democratic Party that has gone very far to the left. It judges is a number one way in which that's happened because they want to see the courts continue to just deliver liberal special interest groups yeah. uh, wish lists rather than actually following the law and the Constitution. You know, Trump, as you know, this is a confirmation process of 192 federal judges as of February 12th, two Supreme Court justices and 51 federal appeals court judges. But based on sort of the composition of the courts right now, are we likely to see that kind of breadth in judicial coverage if Biden is victorious in November? Uh, well, you know, the vacancies keep on coming, and uh, whoever is elected in 2020 is going to continue to have an amazing opportunity. Now, whether he would, whether Biden would be able to take it in the same um, uh, strong way that Trump has, I don't know. That will depend a lot also on who, are, who controls the Senate. If the Democrats have control of the White House and the Senate, I'm, I, I, it's the sky's the limit on what they could do in terms of packing the courts mm-hmm. with judges who would be you – know, committed first and foremost to um, making their liberal policies law, not not looking at what the law says and saying we're going to make sure that gets followed. But uh, what we see, unfortunately, is a lot of judges that, that look at what they want the outcome to be first and then figure out how to shoehorn it into the law rather than you know looking at the law and trying to find out what the correct answer is there, whether, whether it agrees with their policy outcomes or not. 
Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about a Trump-Biden matchup. You know, unfortunately for Biden, he's having to negotiate campaign run for president in utter isolation, which I think is somebody who is older, who has a tendency to come across as Sleepy Joe, who lacks the kind of energy and he's, you know, sort of painted with the notion of cronyism and having been a longtime senator, having been a vice president. I, I'm very curious as to what your take is in terms of energy level and what that visual would look like of a Biden-Trump matchup in November. Boy, I think it's going to be really interesting to see just a um, his performance when he's on a debate stage without a teleprompter in front of him. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what these are going to look like, if there's going to be audiences, et cetera. You know, it, it may look different than typical debate, but just the idea of we have to do this live, we're going to have to do this, um, you know, on the fly and responding not to just, um, you know, scripted or friendly questions, but to uh, to someone who's really going to be going for the jugular on that. And, again, I, this is an area where I think also when if Trump, what, during his 2016 election, every time he talked about judges, that was like a winning comment. People yes. would say, I went to the rallies, and even if it was getting slow, if he said judges, everyone was on their feet. That's another thing. I, I'm confident Trump is going to keep going back to that, and it's continuing to be a weak spot for Biden as long as he is unwilling to say who he put in the court. We saw with, with Clinton versus Trump, all she did is talk about what she wanted in the court. I want more, you know, pro-labor, pro-choice. Uh, you know, anti-pro-LGBT ruling. If he does that, I think that's a losing uh, argument, but we'll see. Yeah. Carrie Severino, president of the Judicial Crisis Network. Always great to have you on. Coming up next, the Attorney General of Louisiana, Jeff Landry, has requested Governor Bell Edwards modify his stay-at-home order to fully open the doors to churches. We'll hear more about the request he made from A.G. Landry himself right after this break on Washington Watch. Is historic masculinity lost forever? Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in a culture of gender confusion? We need men to be men, tough with compassionate strength, bent toward justice without compromise, locking arms and standing. We need to be the men God created us to be and fight for all that is right, true, and just. This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference. To find out more, go to StandCourageous.com. This conference is led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will invest in you, helping you understand your role as a defender, a provider, an instructor, a battle buddy, and a chaplain so that you can have the generational influence that God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, Many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. 
FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. We can all benefit. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I am Sarah Perry, sitting in for Tony Perkins on this Friday afternoon, the first day of May 2020. Well, the Attorney General of Louisiana, Jeff Landry, has sent a letter to Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards. He's requested that Governor Edwards modify his original stay-at-home order so as to allow churches to open their physical doors. Now, Governor Edwards has announced churches can hold outdoor services and they have to observe social distancing measures, but A.G. Landry says that that is not enough. So joining me now to talk about his request to the Governor is Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry himself. A.G. Landry, welcome back to Washington Watch. Well, thank you for having me, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you and our listeners. All right, so I have a question. The way the stay-at-home order is currently written allows the open air of sort of congregations together, and it has to be obviously recognizing appropriate social distancing guidelines, but you're requesting that the physical churches themselves reopen their doors. Tell me why you believe that's so important. Well, look, I think that what you're seeing across the country, and we're seeing it in Louisiana as well, is a tremendous amount of social unrest. Mm -hmm. I think that people have have really had an opportunity to understand the impact of this virus and the understand the dangers, understand who's the most vulnerable, and then adjust their lifestyle accordingly. We also have seen that medical providers are are certainly in a much better position to handle those infected than they were 30 or 40 uh, days ago. And so because of that, I think people are ready to kind of get back to life um, as normal, uh, understanding the, uh, the dangers and the conditions that are out there with this virus until we have a vaccine. And of course, one of the ways that people enjoy their freedoms is, is being able to worship, being able to go to church on Sunday, being able to, uh, you know, to, to exercise their religion. And that's a yeah. bedrock principle of our freedoms here in this country. And so, you know, my letter to the governor was simply to urge him to start to put it, to, you know, to put out some guidance there. That way, houses of worship would, would could could be able to begin to open in a more uniform manner. In other mm-hmm. words, everybody would be looking at the same set of guidance. And that'd be an encouragement for people who really want to be able to worship together as a physical body back in the house of the Lord. And when you submitted this letter, you actually also submitted a set of guidelines as sort of a draft principle to be able to follow so that churches wouldn't have to guess about how they were going to operate. And what were some of those guidelines that you were encouraging Governor Edwards to adopt? Well, of course, look, most of these guidelines were based upon the CDC's recommendations, uh, mostly common sense sanitary measures, uh, things that dealt with the percentage of, 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 of capacity inside of, of those particular houses of worship or those churches, um, 
you know, ways that you should handle the congregation, social distancing, mm-hmm. and so forth. And, of course, we posted them out on our website at agjefflandry.com. Uh, they're very very similar to the ones that FRC has out there uh, and, and I think has posted out as well. Mm-hmm. And this was a culmination of CDC guidelines and working with the Trump administration uh, and their faith-based leaders. Again, this is, this is in an effort to, to allow those people, right, who want to go back to church to be able to do so in a safe manner. And again, if you're in that vulnerable population or you're concerned about uh, contracting the virus, then certainly you don't have to go. You know what I mean? And you can continue uh, to, to, to utilize the social distancing uh, guidelines that are put out there and stay at home. Sure. Now, what was the governor's receptivity to your request? Do you have any indication from his office what he's going to do? Well, he did. He did come out, as you mentioned earlier. On uh, so the, we sent a letter yesterday morning. On yesterday afternoon, he came out and relaxed his order such that he would say, "Look, you know, if if if, if churches want to meet outside, right? If they want to hold outdoor uh, masses or, or services, uh, then then they could do so. Um, you know, if, and if they wanted to put a, a tent covering, um, as long as they didn't." close the walls to the tent, then he, he he said that that would be fine as well. I, I, look, I would have liked to see a lot more, but we did see some movement about a governor, and so we're going to continue to encourage him to do more. Wonderful. And how wonderful that you are speaking as an agent of these churches, being able to step up and say, listen, we have to provide uniformity here because there are people who want to go back to physical worship. They want to be together in their church homes. They want to worship together as a body. I know for us, we are online services right now and almost uniformly the entire state of Maryland. So it makes things sort of adjusted to our expectations. But boy, we can't wait to get back into the physical structure itself. So I'm encouraged that you stepped in and you've provided this necessary request to the governor who hopefully will take it under advisement. I think the guidelines, of course, I'm I'm partial to them, you know, because they do parrot some of the other ones that um, are great ministry team has worked together to sort of establish a set of of content sort of continuous guidelines that will help everyone who wants to go worship. But it's it's been an encouragement to us to watch this development. So as we watch these businesses open their doors, for us, this is a no-brainer. If the businesses are beginning to open, if we've begun to throw up the shades and send in a little bit of light into these crackdowns, it is just as appropriate for us to be able to go back and worship with the other brethren. Yeah, I mean, look, people feel like, look, if you can go to Walmart, if you can go to a grocery store, if you can go to Lowe's, Home Depot, or, 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 or you know, shop around, then you should be able, uh, certainly, to practice your religion and go to your house of worship or, or your particular church. You know, I will say this, you know, my hat's off, and, and certainly all of the 99.9% of the pastors in Louisiana have been absolutely great and around the country in recognizing when this pandemic began, what mm-hmm. the concern was and what the direction it, we needed to take. And so they did the responsible thing. Now that, you know, a lot of that danger has passed, now that the world looks a little different, we should be able to starting to get back towards normal. Yes, I think we're all eager for that. Attorney General Jeff Landry of Louisiana has been my guest today. Well, coming up, 
amid transgender confusion that is permeating all of women's sports stateside, a new petition has been launched to the International Olympic Committee on their guidelines regarding transgender participation in women's sports. We'll talk about it right after this with Beth Stelzer of Save Women's Sports. Welcome back. You're on Washington Watch. I'm Sarah Perry sitting in for Tony Perkins on Friday, May 1st, 2020. And reminder, get our Stand Firm app in the Google Play Store or the Apple Store. And go to TonyPerkins.com for more information on today's show and guests. Transgenderism has permeated all levels of athletic competition in the U.S. And now it has reached the highest levels of international sport. The 2015 International Olympics Committee created by consensus eligibility guidelines for transgender athletes, allowing males who identify as female to enter all women's categories. So a nonpartisan coalition of individuals has now launched a petition aimed at the IOC in order to protect women's sports before the Tokyo Olympics next year. Is it fair to let biological males compete against females? So joining me now to discuss it is mom, competitive powerlifter, and the founder of Save Women's Sports, Beth Stelzer. Beth, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. All right, so I want a quick recap of your story. How did you get involved in this whole process? So I started Save Women's Sports after I competed at a powerlifting competition that was protested by a man because he was not allowed to compete in the Women's State Championships. That kind of opened me up to the uh, rabbit hole of transgenderism in our society, and I realized that I needed to stand up for women in sports. And now we've decided that with this unforeseen little forced break due to COVID-19, that there's no reason for the IOC not to re-examine just what is fair for females. Mm, I, see, I love that. In fact, one of the things I really wanted to know is whether or not this provided you all with a prime opportunity to be able to say, okay, we're going to hit the pause button on what these regulations are dating back to 2015. So in some ways, the IOC was sort of frustratingly ahead of the curve on the trend of biological males competing in women's sports. So what are you asking the IOC to do with this petition? Simply suspend these current guidelines, which allow a biological male to compete without surgery, merely lowering the testosterone, which we all know does not negate these physical advantages that they have over women, mm-hmm. and to take this time to have a balanced conversation. Most of these conversations have been male scientists and transgender scientists and not much women involved or many athlete women involved. We need a balanced conversation. And so I think that's why this grassroots little coalition has taken off. See, now we're over 40 organizations from over 14 countries. Mm. We've waited. We've all needed this chance to speak up because we've been silenced by the media. So we're really grateful for people like you for having, being on board and for having us on. 
Well, the current regulations dating back to 2015 are what? Simply that there needs to be a decrease in testosterone for a year before competition. Is that right? Right. Under 10 and a women's level on the higher end runs around three. We're about zero to three. There's no reason why 10 is even a logical number to set up. We're saying let's forget about all this testosterone nonsense. Men shouldn't compete against women. Now, have you seen particular sports that are finding sort of a more, in, uh, an increased invasion of biological males? Are there certain aspects of sport at the international level that seem to be permeated by biological males identifying as female? The one that's front and center usually when we're looking at in this debate with the Olympics is weightlifting. Mm-hmm. We have Laurel Hubbard, who lifted as a male and is now dominating in the female category and is looking to gain entry. And there are other aspects like cycling, but this is the one at the forefront usually when we're talking about, because it's pretty ridiculous to look at the pictures and see Laurel at the top of the women's platform. Mm. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. So how many responses have you had so far? What's been sort of the public response to an initiative like this? Obviously very needed. We've had a lot of support. When we first went online, we had about 20 organizations, and all the organizations in just a matter of a few days has doubled. We're up to 4,000 signatures on the petition. Um, But what I'm most proud about is getting all these people together from left, right, center to join together in this single issue. You know, we hear a lot about powerful and amazing things. We we hear a lot about bipartisanship or multi-level partisanship crossing the aisle with our sort of political adversaries or opponents. But this truly is one of those issues in which there has been an unlikely partnership of people who might otherwise be perceived as sort of unlikely allies and friends who might stand on the opposite side of the aisle on other political issues, highly divisive political issues. But it's encouraging to see the support for Something like this, which honestly is a conversation we shouldn't need to have to have. But if we're going to have it, let's get everybody involved to have it. So if we want more information first about these guidelines, what's taking place as of right now at the IOC, where do you encourage people to go? You can go to the Save Women Sports website. You can go to Save Women Sports slash IOC petition to look at the petition. And then they can also find the current guidelines there under our policies tab. And how long do you guys plan to keep the petition operational? Just until our Olympics pick up? Yes, or until we get enough signatures that we can convince them to have a meeting with us personally. Boy, if that's the case, I will take a plane and you and I will go over together so I can watch it happen. Thanks for what you are doing, Beth. (laughs) Beth Beth Stelzer, Save Women's Sports. You heard her. Go to the Save Women's Sports website for more information to sign this necessary petition. Do it sooner rather than later. Let's use this next year for the IOC to be able to reexamine what biology actually means. Coming up next, lots to talk about in North Korea, change of regimes, parliament elections, and religious liberty. All with activist Henry Song after this. 
Where can young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of real manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of gender confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate men who understand the issues of the day and will help you understand your role as a defender, provider, instructor, battle buddy, and chaplain so that you can have the generational influence God has designed you to have. Learn more at StandCourageous.com. Recently, a bill called the Fairness for All Act was introduced to the House of Representatives. In response, FRC has a new resource, the Unfairness of the Fairness for All Act. This act attempts to find a compromise between the First Amendment's protection of religious freedom and the demands of the LGBT community. But, unfortunately, it is a poorly drafted bill that would negatively impact religious freedom, true equality, and the privacy and safety of women. Learn more at frc.org slash fairness for all. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the primary supplier of abortions in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed over 345,000 abortions in fiscal year 2018. That means, on average, Planned Parenthood aborted 1,768 babies every single day in 2018. And while Planned Parenthood's report revealed an increase in abortions committed, many of the services they provide, such as breast exams and cancer screenings, have drastically decreased. FRC recently released its 2020 edition of The Real Planned Parenthood, Leading the Culture of Death. In this resource, you will find many facts revealing the truth, that Planned Parenthood is in the business of abortion, not health care. To access this resource and to find out more, go to frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. That's frc.org slash Planned Parenthood Facts. Well, it's Friday. Happy Friday to you. It is May 1st, 2020. Follow Tony on Twitter at T Perkins or me at Sarah P. Perry. Go now. Download the Stand Firm app. You can take us. You can take the show anywhere you want to listen when you have time, which for some of us home with kids might be after they're asleep, but you can still get it done. Well, tomorrow wraps up North Korean Freedom Week and speculation continues on whether or not its dictator, Kim Jong-un, is dead or alive. Will the world see his sister assume leadership of the regime? And in a historic moment, two North Korean defectors have recently been elected to South Korea's parliament. Add to this, North Korea's status as the most secretive nation in the world, known for widespread human rights abuses. And you'll anticipate that my next guest and I have a lot to talk about. So joining me now is Korean human rights activist Henry Song. Henry, welcome to Washington Watch. Hello, Sarah. Nice to uh, be here, and thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, we've we've got a ton to talk about. North Korea is very much in the news right now. Lots of speculation as to whether or not yes. Kim Jong-un is alive and well or whether he is in a critical or vegetative state. We can't get a straight answer out of anybody. So as somebody who follows these nations closely, North and South Korea, somebody who has studied this regime, what's your inclination as to what's happening over there? Well, uh, you are correct. No one knows what's going on uh, in North Korea right now. And, um, you know, reading all the articles and analysis and, you know, all these pundits and experts talking about this, uh, my 
guess guess in my position on this is that uh, simply we don't know what's going on, but I tend to think that either Kim Jong-un is dead or he is comatose, and the regime is taking its time to properly prepare uh, the next in line, probably his sister Kim Yo-jong, mm. and um, you know, they're taking their time to make sure everything goes smoothly in terms of the transition. And he hasn't been seen in public for about three weeks now, which is right. quite unusual in North Korea. Yeah. Now, here's here's what I find interesting. And having done some reading before this, and thanks to our good religious liberty and international experts here at FRC, you know, South Korea has maintained officially that there's nothing unusual about the situation in North Korea, which surprises me because, of course, as somebody who anticipates you've got this democratic republic, naturally they would be anxious for the hastening of a at least a regime change to his sister, although she's kind of an unknown commodity. One would think South Korea would say, definitely incapacitated, we're going to see a change soon, but they haven't. They've said there's nothing unusual. Right. Well, the current president of South Korea is, uh, you know, a nice way of putting it would be a progressive. Uh, many North Korean defectors and mm. uh, human rights activists see him as very uh, pro-North Korean and um you know, my guess is that uh, President Moon and his administration, they want to, you know, maintain some sort of uh, normalcy and they don't want to alarm, uh, you know, people in South Korea. And uh, I think that's why they're maintaining this position of, you know, saying that uh, there's nothing wrong with Kim Jong-un and things are normal uh, in North Korea because mm-hmm. uh, President Moon is somebody who's known to uh, really push for uh, you know, peace and reconciliation and, and meeting Kim Jong-un uh, numerous times and, and taking that position. So for him and his administration, uh, uh, being very progressive and pro-North Korean, I think uh, it's only natural that they would uh, have this uh, position in terms of uh, what's going on with uh, regards to uh, Kim Jong-un's status. So we've just had elections in South Korea. Major turnout, 66% of South Koreans turned out to vote, which was huge. But there was really a massive historic shift here, and that we watched two North Korean defectors get elected to parliament. This is huge. So tell me about these two individuals. Well, uh, the um, election was truly historic in the sense that the conservatives, they were uh, totally uh, defeated in terms of, um, you know, wanting to win the seats. And the only good news that came out of this is, like you just mentioned right now, the election of uh, Mr. K. Yong-ho, the former uh, DHRK uh, diplomat who was based in London, who defected. Uh, from there, and also um, Mr. Chi jong who is a personal friend of mine, and Mr. Tae actually ran for constituency seat and won uh, that race, whereas mm. Mr. Ji uh, was proportionally elected. Uh, nonetheless, it's uh, truly historic and a seismic thing that happened that two North Korean defectors uh, won uh, you know, their seats in uh, this recent election. It's truly uh, a wonderful thing that that happened. Good news out of all the values that came out of uh, the major defeat by the conservatives in South Korea. Yeah, absolutely. So where does the support base come from for individuals like these two North Korean defectors? Obviously, there seems to be, regardless of what the president has maintained, obviously you said he's he's more progressive, and we're going to talk about sort of his hostility to North Korean defectors in a second here. But where do you develop a base of support like that? Are the citizens sort of at odds with the president in terms of how they view North Korean defectors and really the cause of freedom overall? 
Right. So in addition to Mr. Kelly and Songho, uh, three other North Korean defectors ran uh, for seats, uh, for proportional uh, seats in other uh, minor parties. Unfortunately, they did not meet the uh, 3% uh, threshold for uh, getting the proportional seats. So um, out of the five, uh, the fact that two, Mr. Kelly and Songho, were uh, elected is a huge uh, win. Uh, but uh, still in South Korea, though things have improved a lot over the years, uh, South Koreans, uh, majority of them still see North Koreans as outsiders uh, mm-hmm. on the same level as, you know, the third world guest workers that come from Southeast Asia, for example. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really sad that they're both, you know, the same blood, same ethnicity, same Koreans, but the fact that North Koreans still are looked down upon and uh, discriminated against in South Korea. Um, hopefully the win, you know, of Mr. Tang and Tsongho will uh, go a long ways in terms of uh, improving uh, the image or improving the treatment of North Korean defectors by a majority of South Korean citizens. Yeah, this is this is amazing to me that there's sort of, you know, growing acceptance of the North Korean regime among parts of South Korea. The president himself seems to be rather sympathetic to the North Korean regime. And I have to tell you, as somebody who has had the privilege of living in a constitutional republic, in a democracy my whole life, I look at South Korea as a democratic republic with three branches of government that functions a lot like ours here. And I think, why in the world would you ever look at a North Korean regime and think, well, maybe we need to reconsider our original perspective and you know maybe we don't want to elect these people to parliament and thank god that they were elected and i i pray with you that they change the face of north korean defectors and there is a reason people flee north korea the most secretive world regime notorious for its human rights abuses and torture that it just absolutely shocks me do you feel that the covid19 pandemic has had any influence sort of on government or on religious persecution overall in North Korea? Well, talking to my uh, defector friends and uh, hearing what they've heard from their contacts in North Korea, uh, there is definitely uh, uh, an effect of the uh, the Wuhan coronavirus happening in North Korea, uh, contrary to what the regime has said, saying that there's no uh, infection, there's no, uh, you know, the, you know, serious emergency going on in North Korea as uh, uh, as it relates to the uh, virus. But um, there have been reported cases coming out of um, North Korea, reported by uh, defective groups and other media outlets that report from inside uh, North Korea secretly that there have been uh, many people that have been affected and many deaths mm-hmm. related to uh, North Korea. And as we've seen in other uh, dictatorships around the world, I think uh, the regime uh, obviously is using the pandemic to uh, you know, come down even harder on its citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now you have the excuse of health concerns to be able to continue, maintain, and enhance your crackdowns. And again, we, as we learned with China, never trust state media. What they tell you out of one side of their mouth is going to be contradicted out of the other side of their mouth. So, of course, we, we know that there is inaccuracy in reporting what's presented to the world as a whole. Now, we talked a little bit about Kim Jong-un's possible impending death potentially his his vegetative state that leaves the sort of reins of the regime to his sister uh kim jong-un's younger sister 
Kim Yo-yong, but I want to know what you know about this individual and whether or not we might anticipate any flexibility or favorability toward enhancing democratic ideals. I'm afraid the answer is no, but I want to hear from you. Well, you're exactly right. Um, you know, the Kim uh, dictatorial regime, they want to continue the, the dynasty, if you will, of the Kim family. And uh, if uh, Kim Jong-un is no longer in power, uh, I'm sure he will have uh, done everything he could to make sure that uh, his sister, younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, is indeed the one that takes uh, over. And for anyone to think that because she's a woman, she's younger, she's, you know, exposed to uh, Western things and uh, you know, met Trump, et cetera, if they assume that she's going to be more open or uh, more, uh, you know, willing to bring about change in North Korea. Um, you know, many people have the same idea about Kim Jong-un when he first uh, came to power because he was educated in Switzerland, he was exposed to the West, and people thought that because of that, uh, he would uh, be more open to changing North Korea. Obviously, that didn't happen, and mm-hmm. I don't expect uh, the same to happen with uh, Kim Jong-un also. I think she'll be as ruthless, if not more ruthless than uh, her brother, uh, in terms of maintaining a grip on power, if she were to be selected to be uh, the next leader. So the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Tony Perkins, the the president here at FRC, was on Tuesday to be able to talk about the report. We know that North Korea continues to stay on that list of countries of particular concern. North Korea really, you know, leading the top of the list as someone who is patently abusive and aggressive toward any other religion. It's a nation steeped in idolatry because this goes not just with a government mental regime, but it is a form, according to the regime, of worship. They've actually deified the Kim family. So that's, boy, that's really hard to separate your religious beliefs from where you stand as a government. So what options do we have? How do we ensure the protection, however small, of religious liberty in North Korea when they're up against such formidable odds? How do we crack that code? Well, I think as uh, believers and as concerned citizens um, and as Christians, I think um, the first and foremost thing we should do is pray for uh, the underground uh, Christians in North Korea, the mm-hmm. believers who are being persecuted. And, yes. um, of course, you know, when we say we need to pray, you know, that's such an you know, obvious thing to say as believers, but we really need to pray, uh, keeping in mind. I think for me, um, the verse that I like to remind myself all the time is from Hebrews uh, 13.3, where it says that we need to remember those in prison as if we were ourselves are in prison uh, uh, together. And so um, praying mm-hmm. for uh, the Christians uh, in North Korea. And what's amazing is that um, I've heard testimony of other believers uh, from North Korea, uh, small, new small down North Korea, that you know, these believers in North Korea are praying for us in the West. So you know, it's so moving and so wonderful that um, despite all the persecution and, and the, the hardship that they're praying for other believers in the West. So for yes. us, living in freedom, living in liberty, we need to uh, you know, daily pray and pray for uh, not only the believers, but pray for wisdom for leaders uh, in the U.S. and South Korea to be able to deal with the situation and uh, just really get involved with, uh, with this issue. 
You know, our elections obviously coming up in November place the stakes extremely high. Kim Jong-un has been proud of his nuclear arsenal. He's displayed it frequently in media that's broadcast around the world. We hear often of how he plans to expand it. We know that international sanctions, for what they're worth against him, are utterly useless. Are you watching with particular interest the election in November to determine what happens in terms of the United States' relationship to North Korea? Uh, well, you know, I think what uh, President Trump and the administration has done in terms of uh, the good thing that they've done in terms of uh, dealing with North Korea is, uh, you know, maintaining uh, sanctions. And I think they need to be enforced and strengthened. Um, and come November, um, you know, whoever comes uh, into power, who or whether Trump uh, wins or if uh, Biden wins, whoever comes to the White House, I think they need to remember that North Korea, the regime, will never give up its nuclear weapons. And... Mm. Uh, we must put the human rights uh, issue on the table. Now, I would say that it should be, you know, the very table on which everything else should be discussed when it comes to North Korea, because uh, that is the one uh, thing that North Korea, uh, the region, fears the most when it's called out uh, on its uh, human rights violations. And so um, that must not uh, be uh, discarded or, or relegated to the back burner. The human rights issue must be uh, uh, at the forefront when dealing with North, with North, yes. North Korea. Yes, we've, uh, we have been following this issue very closely, obviously, particularly with interest over these human rights violations and religious liberty violations. And we know behind the scenes, as many as potentially 100,000 Christians could be kept in these gulags, these imprisonment camps. And it presents us here in the West with such a shocking contradiction, knowing, as you said, that they pray for us, even within their own confinement, even within the regime itself under the auspices of communism to think westward about those of us who enjoy the trappings and blessings of freedom and liberty. Boy, I tell you what, it's convicting, Henry. I I will say it has given me another thing about which to specifically pray because we are so interested in the fate of the believers who suffer under persecution that we may never know. I want to encourage our listeners for more information on this. Go to frc.org backslash religious liberty. And we've got a number of different writings. Our Leela Gilbert, who is our senior fellow for religious liberty, has recently written on North Korea. She's been following the issue as well and was earlier on the show this week when we talked about the U.S. Commission's International Religious Freedom Report. Henry Song, thanks so much for being with us today on Washington Watch. Thanks for all you're doing to share shed light on a very important topic, and we convey our good wishes and our prayers to your brothers and sisters in North Korea, continuing from here on out. Thanks so much for being with us, everyone in Washington Watch, and I will see you again next week. Enjoy your weekend. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. 